lot of stuff going on, big conflict, Middle East. And I haven't really said anything about this on Twitter on my once a week appearance on Twitter on Tuesdays or really on Noster either. I've been seeing a ton of takes, many of which I do not agree with, some of which are reasonable, I think. But I just sort of taken it all in and before I really say anything, not because I really so worried that people are going to jump down my throat if I say something, the wrong thing or anything like that. More just, I just want to let it settle in and see what I actually think about it for just like rattling off some hot take, which is what seems like a lot of people are doing. So the first thing I would say is, you know, this is the beginning of a, of a war of sorts. It's a big, it's a big deal. And if you remember the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of stuff that was reported that turned out being completely false. Those uh, Chinese people who were killing over and dropping dead in the street. And we saw those videos in early 2020 and that was fake. He said, oh my God, it's so deadly. It's just killing these Chinese people in the street. You know, they're walking in the next second, they're killing over and dying. So that was fake. And obviously the Ukraine war, there's a lot of fake news coming out right away. So I just think like, we don't really know the facts. We know some reported facts, some reporters that are more reliable or less reliable than others, but even people we thought were reliable before COVID turned out to be very unreliable. So I would just say, we don't really know exactly what happened. So that that's just like an important consideration. And it's interesting. I saw this today. This is just a tangential thing, but I find these kind of things really interesting. 33 years ago to the day when they reported, probably saw this, that they were Hamas was beheading Israeli babies. Uh, 33 years ago to the day of that reporting, we got reports from Iraq in 19... I guess it was 1990, it must have been, that that they were killing babies in incubators. And that was one of the big drivers of support for the first invasion of Iraq to drive them out of Kuwait. And there wasn't really support for that war or that invasion, intervention, whatever you want to call it. I guess it was a war. And then they reported on the babies in incubators, and then the U.S. public changed its tune. They were killing babies in incubators. And so... You know, that was a line you just can't cross. And so now this report is coming out 33 years to the day. Why do I, why is that important? 33 years. Well, I wrote a piece on this when we were in Morocco last February. I was talking to our driver, this guy, Abdel, who was a Muslim. We were asking because Ramadan was coming up like in March, he said, I think last year. And we were there during Ramadan in Marrakesh in 2017. So we're like, wait, that was in june that we were in marrakesh and it was ramadan and now he's saying that ramadan is in march so we were asking about that and he said well the, the difference is that islam uses a lunar calendar and its year is basically 11 days shorter than the solar calendar which is the gregorian calendar which is what most of the western world uses and so every year ramadan and everything else on the islamic calendar the lunar calendar moves 11 days relative to the solar calendar, the one that we use. So that's why after six years or whatever it was that Ramadan was in March instead of June, 66 days. It, it got me thinking because if you, if you multiply uh, 11 days by 33, you get 363. So roughly every 33 years, the solar and lunar calendars align back. 
so so Ramadan every 33 years cycles around the solar calendar and ends up in the same spot it was 33 years ago. So, you know, if we were there in 2017, then in 2050, Ramadan would again be at the time that we were there in June in 2017. The point of this is that there's these 33 year cycles where the solar and the lunar line up. And that was one of the, that was the basis for this great show on Netflix called Dark. It was a German show. And I mean, I highly, highly recommend it, but the whole idea was sort of like, there was sort of a wormhole that had opened up and they could go back in increments of 33 years and the same exact patterns of things were happening 33 years prior, 33 years later. So it just, it just reminded me of the thing that I brought up in the column, which was that Joe Theismann broke his right, his right tibia and fibula on November 18th, 1985 in a game in Washington that ended 23-21. The only three-time defensive player of the year at that point, Lawrence Taylor was involved in the injury. It occurred around the 40 yard line and Theismann's pro bowl left tackle. Joe Jacoby was not on the field. He was hurt 33 years later to the day, November 18th, 2018, Alex Smith breaks his right tibia and fibula in a game in Washington that end 23, 21. The only other three time defensive player of the year at that point, Aaron Donald has since won the award three times. JJ Watt is involved in the play, which occurred Around the 40-yard line, Smith's Pro Bowl left tackle Trent Williams was not on the field due to an injury. 33 years to the day, exact same injury, exact same field. The only time that injury's ever happened, to my knowledge, to a quarterback on the football team in that spot. I mean, this is just extremely coincidental. And it's when the two calendars lined up, and now... You had this report of incubator babies and incubators 33 years ago to the day, which sent us into war with Iraq. And now there's this report that Hamas is killing babies. Now, I'm not saying that means it's not true. I, I'm, I don't know. I actually just don't know. But I figured I would point out how uncanny that is. And just the fact that we don't really know the facts. Now, what do you do when you don't know the facts? You, you got to figure them out. And what's the best fact-finding device that we have ever invented? Well, it's courtroom. And the jury is the finder of fact in this courtroom. And how does it work? Well, there's witnesses called, and those witnesses get cross-examined, and there's expert testimony, and those experts get cross-examined, and there's evidence, physical evidence in some cases, entered in the record, and there's rules, evidentiary rules, to try to get rid of things that will bias the jury too much, we don't want hearsay. We don't want uh, unreliable sources getting in and, and messing with people emotionally. We want to get the facts, have the facts sometimes clarified by expert testimony, have them cross-examined, and then have the attorneys make their case on behalf of their of the parties, and then the jury decides. So the other thing that is involved, at least in a in the U.S. court system, is that when you're when they're doing jury selection, they screen the jurors, both the defense and the prosecutors get to screen the jurors, ask them questions to detect if they'll be biased because the point of the jury is to impartially evaluate the facts so that they can render a just verdict. You don't want people who are partial. So if, you know, there's somebody who, I don't know, they're, you're, it's a civil case for uh, medical malpractice. You, you don't want someone on the jury whose mom died due to medical malpractice 
six months ago, right? They would be asked, they'd be excused because that would, you know, it's likely that they would be biased against the defendant in that case. So if you look at who would be qualified to sit on a jury, it would be somebody without a huge you know, dog in the fight, so to speak. And what you actually see is people on Twitter and elsewhere who are passionate def- defenders of the Israeli state, who have family in Israel, who know people have been harmed in attacks in Israel, who had family in the Holocaust. And they, in some cases, are passionately saying, we need to wipe them out. We need to wipe out the Palestinians. We need to show them this can't stand. And if you say, well, I don't know if that's really a good idea to harm innocents to avenge, even if every fact is true, even if it shows that all the, even if the babies being beheaded is actually true, if they were that barbaric to do something like that, do, is it really necessary to kill innocent people? And they're like, they support this. They're on board with this. They would kill every last one of us. And, you know, that's their argument. And you you realize whether what they're saying is true or false, this person is not qualified to sit on the jury in this case. They're just not. Even if they're right, even if even if they're correct that every last Palestinian, I don't think they're correct, but maybe they are, I don't know the answer, would murder them if they could. Even if they're correct, that person should not be on the jury in this case because they are too biased. And then you have people saying, this is a great day, liberation for Palestine, you know, for the underdogs, the open air prison they've been in. And these are people that think, even if it's true that they murdered babies, that that's good because it's good for the cause. And of course, these people should not be allowed to be on the jury. Obviously, these people are extremely biased. They are looking at, they're, they're saying, and again, I don't know that this is true, but they're saying even assuming they did these monstrous acts, we're okay with it because we're so biased. We've lost our humanity entirely that we don't care about the bloodshed of, the, of, of babies. So I think you can, without knowing the facts, you can say a few things. You can say one, assuming the facts are true, you cannot support this. You cannot say, and this is a lot of what like the Black Lives Matter and some of these students at Harvard, I'll get into that in a bit. It's pretty revealing. They're saying, Assuming this is true, I'm good with it. You know, that's obviously disqualifying. And then on the other side, they're saying, even if we have to kill civilians, even if we have to level a city of people that that had nothing to do with planning or executing this attack, that's okay because they're bad and they're evil and they're beneath consideration in this case. Both of those, any of those people with those two takes are disqualified from sitting on the jury. And what does that mean, disqualified from sitting on the jury? It means you should not be rendering a verdict. You are not qualified. You want to render a verdict very badly. In this case, I can see it by your takes, but you are not qualified to render a verdict, not a just verdict. You can render whatever fucking verdict you want. I'm a free speech absolutist. I think you should be able to say any of that stuff. Even the nasty stuff about this is good and you know, even if they had to kill innocent people, this is good. I think you should be able to say that because saying it is different than doing it. You absolutely should not be able to do it, but you should be able to say that. Saying and doing are not the same thing, even if saying it may trigger strong emotional reactions in people. So that's kind of the baseline where I come from on this is the first thing, if, if the powers that be 
were extremely wise. If the Israeli government were extremely wise, they'd say, and if this were true, and if they have nothing to do with it, and I don't trust any government, and I'll get into that in a bit also, if everything were on the level and this just happened and it was truly a failure of intelligence and they somehow didn't see this coming, which a lot of people are doubting that this many Hamas terrorists could have gotten into the country without Israel knowing and responding right away. But let's just say it happened. And let's say that everything was on the level. If they were wise, I think they would say this is a horrific, horrific tragedy, horrible, barbaric terrorist act. And what we're going to do now is we're going to let the victims know that, that there will be justice for this. But justice and revenge are not the same thing. And killing a bunch of innocents to avenge this horrific act will not bring the victims back to life. It may feel good in the moment to get your emotions and to kill some of their innocent people because they killed your innocent people, but that's not going to resolve the blood feud and it's not going to bring anybody back. And it's going to just make things worse because you're killing people that didn't deserve to die. And then their families who had nothing to do with the attack are going to have a blood feud against you and you're going to just breed more terrorists and on and on. And so what they would do is just vow for justice, not retribution. And then painstakingly, slowly, carefully ascertain the facts. And then when they had the facts as best they could, they would present their case. Where would they present their case? I don't know. The UN. The UN is a joke. All these international institutions are a joke. I realize. But you just do it for the formality of it. And you live stream it. You present it to the world, the case, as best you can. And authenticate everything you can. And then you say, this is, this is the demand. You know, These people, this leader, these people who are involved, XYZ, you need to turn them over. You've got this much time to turn them over. And if you don't turn them over then you're in criminal contempt basically as a as a country and then you know then you then you start to muster the will to have some sort of sanction have some sort of punishment now people say well the un doesn't give a fuck and this shit never works and you're still going to collectively punish innocent people with sanctions and everything else and so you're not going to achieve anything maybe and then the other thing that would happen is that the palestinians would say okay fine this is actually the good thing that would happen the palestinians would say Oh, you want us to turn over our people who have done these acts? Okay, fine. Then turn over the Israeli soldiers that shot innocent and killed innocent Palestinians the last few years. And if Israel were wise, they would say, you know what? Those people should be prosecuted also. And so you'd have the Palestinians turning over Hamas and the Israelis turning over all their barbaric criminals that uh, hurt the Palestinians. And then you would start to have like a sense of, oh, there is justice and things would start to heal. But even if that did happen, long shot as though it would be, you'd probably have some Mossad, CIA, Hamas, who knows if they're not all working together, do some suicide bombings in the meantime to derail that process of healing. And so it would get back to square one. But if they were wise, I think they would just slowly make a case, whether the UN may be a stupid example, because that may be pointless, but make their case somewhere publicly and say, this is, this is who did it. We're, we're asking for justice. Got to turn them over. And, you know, if, if they didn't turn them over, the other alternative is obviously just to mark them for assassination and wait and just eventually do it. Now, 
it would be sort of like you'd have to prosecute them in absentia if they didn't show up for trial and publicly show the trial and say, look, they can defend themselves if they want. They can show up. But if if not, then we'll just try them in absentia. And then once convicted, we'll meet out the sentencing. And if it's a death sentence, then they're fair game. And, you know, that would be that. And would they be able to get them? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they have to wait five years to get them. But they would know that they were marked men and not just the guy going on TV and declaring jihad, but could be financiers behind it. It could be people behind it that were also sentenced and that would have to live, you know, with this death sentence hanging over them. So that would be sort of the way to do it. But I realize that's completely far-fetched and never going to happen. And so what we're probably going to have instead is some sort of retribution and bloodshed. But my view is basically just that we don't know the facts and without the facts, you're just running on emotion. And if you're got too much of a dog in this fight, as many people do, you probably shouldn't be on the jury, which means you shouldn't be rendering the verdict. And, you know, obviously it's, it's so stupid that I even have to pander by fucking saying this, killing innocent people is an atrocity. So to the extent that Hamas is murdering innocent Israelis, no matter what the situation is on the ground there, no matter what, you can't kill innocent people. And these Israelis who are saying, you've got to kill them all because they would get rid of us. Um, that's psycho behavior. You don't, how do you know? How do you know the average Palestinian, if given freedom and a chance at a decent life, would have any beef at all? How do you know that? Oh, because they say so. Well, who? Do every single one pledges it? Every single person? You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what they would do if they had some measure of financial comfort and security, how they would feel. You don't know. And so I, I just feel like this sort of, it kind of reminds me of that black mirror. There was that black mirror where there was like one group of militant people who were hunting the roaches and there were the roaches were these super ugly sort of deformed humans. And they were like, you know, on the run for their lives being shot at and attacked. And then one of the people who was hunting them, like doesn't eat the lunch or the, whatever the pills are giving them for whatever reason. And you realize those pills are making them hallucinate and see them as these like deformed roaches and they're actually just regular people. And it was, I thought that was such a good black mirror because you know, that once you get off the drug of nationalism or wokeism or communism or ideology or religion, there's nothing wrong with religion per se. And there's nothing wrong with having pride in your ethnicity or nationality per se. But once you get off the drug of it, of seeing these other nationalities or ethnicities or religions as roaches, as they're all a bunch of terrorist psychos, it's not so easy to kill them. It's not so easy to kill the average Palestinian as collateral damage because the guy who really did the atrocity is, is hiding there. It's a much more difficult conversation. And I know people say, well, Israel's super careful. Sam Harris, the fucking charlatan of charlatans, Mr. Vaccine Mandate himself, is being quoted by some of these people. And it makes me sick. Because Sam Harris said, he said, that there's, there's no moral equivalence whatsoever. He, he said that Israel tries painstakingly to avoid civilian deaths while Hamas and the Palestinians would want to, it's their mission is to wipe Israel off the map. I've heard uh, from some sectors, some takes that they want to wipe, wipe the nation of Israel off the map. They don't want to necessarily kill the Israelis and being opposed to Israel as a existing country is, you may disagree that you may think it's a, a wrong and stupid and ignorant opinion, but that is not the same thing as genociding the Jews. Now, do some of them probably want to do that? Sure. They certainly say they do. 
And I would believe some of them. But the idea that all of the Palestinians, that's, that's what they want, I, I just don't believe that. I believe it's convenient to believe that because then you can excuse whatever you're doing to them as self-defense. You know, the same way that people wanted to put the unvaccinated in camps because, oh, but you're killing people by being, being unvaccinated. So it's just self-defense. I can take out my aggression and angst on you out of self-defense. So I can kill innocent Palestinians, not the ones attacking us, because it's really just self-defense. You would kill us if you had the chance. And Sam Harris is such a fucking charlatan. He exposed his own shitty logic in the same statement. He said, look, when, when Israel killed four Palestinian kids, that was an accident. And you know it's an accident because by doing so, they were a pariah in the world. And they would never want to do that. So you know it's an accident. And I agree. It probably was an accident when they, like a shell went in the wrong place. I don't know what happened. And they killed four kids. I, I'm sure it was an accident. And he s explains why, because they became a pariah. So it's not that Israel is so careful, necessarily so careful, because it's caring and compassionate toward the Palestinians. It's careful, in part at least, and Sam Harris said it himself, because if it just wiped out, got, you know, his argument is, Israel can wipe out every Palestinian tomorrow and they don't do that. So they're the good guys. The Palestinians, if they had the power, would wipe out every Israeli Jew. And so they are the bad guys because that's what they would do. And they say they want to do it. But then the example with the kids belies that because he gives the reason why they would never do that, which is they would be a pariah. Israel has status. Israel is, you know, it's obviously got some justified criticism and unjustified anti-Semitic criticism, both. But the point is it has some status. It is a first world nation. It People go there for tourism. It's not like Palestine or Iraq or, and even those countries, you know, probably do care about their perception, but it's just not destroyed wreckage of a country that those other places are. Israel has first world living standards. So Israel has something to lose if it just when scorched earth. And so the idea that it's just out of the goodness of their heart that they're being so merciful, that's not entirely true. And he proved it in his exact example, which is that, of course, they're not going to just go kill some children. Uh, they will be a pariah. Now, you see then, though, by contrast, all these Israelis saying, raise this fucking thing to the ground. Jordan Peterson, give him hell. Uh, I, I feel like that's the contrast. They, they're like, but we're only doing it because of what you did to us. But the you who did it to us is a handful of terrorists and to just kill everybody because of the actions of a handful of terrorists is obviously wrong. Just like it's totally wrong. Even if Israel is maintaining these, what they call open air prisons, even if it is an oppressive situation to kill innocent Israelis who are not, they're not doing that. You know, they're just living in the country. They're just born in the country and they're living there, living their lives and not, actively. And some of them, you know, there's obviously many Palestinians and Jews who are friends and many Palestinians and Jews who want peace. So even just that shows that not all Palestinians are the way they're being characterized. They, they certainly shouldn't be forced to suffer for the deeds of other people. I mean, I don't want to be killed. You know, I'm Jewish and I don't want to be attacked because of what Israel does. If Israel were to raise Palestine to the ground, if they were to respond in that way, and I really hope they do not, I don't want someone killing me or my family because, well, Jews did this, so you're on the hook. Like to me, that's the same reasoning of Palestinians did this, so they're on the hook. That's really bad, right? I mean, that's a black person 
kills some white people, do you just say all black people are on the hook? If a white cop shoots some black people, does that mean all white people are bad? No, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. That's just barbaric thinking to punish everybody for the crimes of a few. So anyway, that's my, that's my take. It's not really a hot take. It's more a very tepid take because A, we don't know the facts. B, they lie all the time in the fog of war. There's so much propaganda going around. C, there's some real questions, right? And it's the same thing as 9-11, right? 9-11, horrible attack. People died. There's no justifying it. They started pointing to people celebrating the attack. I'm sure some people did. I don't know how many, but it's an idiotic thing to do. It's not. So I think people have a right to celebrate attacks. I, w- I would protect their right because celebrating attack is, is free speech. You may think it's disgusting and vile, but they have the right to do it. Um, but people were you know, starting to use that as a justification. The same thing, like, oh, they want us dead. They hate us. Um, so let's, let's murder them because they you know, look at them celebrating. Let's just murder them. They deserve to die. They, they want to kill us. They hate us for our freedom. Remember that? All that rhetoric, all that propaganda. And what did 9-11 do? 9-11 was a tragedy, but the reaction to 9-11 was 100 times worse for the U.S. and for the world than 9-11. 9-11 was terrible, but the reaction of going to Iraq and Afghanistan, bankrupting ourselves, we're now $33 trillion in debt. A huge chunk of that was due to those wars. We killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, most of whom were innocent. I mean, the, the reaction was just, and Iraq, by the way, had nothing to do with 9-11. And Afghanistan is destroyed. Iraq is destroyed. It, the reaction was 10 times worse. We completely, besides indebting ourselves and murdering all those people, completely destroyed any credibility we have in the world as some sort of just arbiter of what's going on. I mean, it's just created horrible precedents. The Patriot Act, I and mean, I should have led with the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act, which eroded people's civil rights basically around the world, but certainly in the U.S. It's unconstitutional and gave rise to the surveillance state. The Snowden revelations came out of the Patriot Act, the things that they were doing. So this really reminds me of that quite a bit. And so I think like the smart thing to do would just be extremely judicious, calm. And I feel like there's like an element of, of just immaturity Call it, it's even worse than immaturity. It's sort of what the Bitcoiners call short time preference, which is if if you're, I mean, if you're just a human being and you you hear that these attacks and atrocities have happened in Israel, it's a painful thing to to hear about. And especially if you're connected to it in some way, if you have family there or you're it's important to you as a Jewish person, it's extremely painful to hear that this happened. It's emotionally painful. So you're in a lot of pain emotionally, this discomfort. And the question is, what do you do about it? You know, can you process it? Can you handle the emotional pain of, of knowing about this? Now, for the people who actually have like sons or daughters who are killed, that's a really big ask. And that's why those people can never get near a jury box because it's just, it's impossible for, they're just in too much pain to, to be rational. It's like, it would be extremely hard under those conditions to be rational. But the other people who are just connected to it, you know, and it's not their family members, it's still very painful for them, I imagine. They want to get rid of this pain by lashing out. So, you know, what when you get angry and you lash out at your kid or your, your spouse or your 
friend because you're very angry. You're basically like you have this pain in you and you're trying to get rid of it. And obviously very conditioned to want to avoid pain and seek comfort and pleasure. And this pain is just too much and we want to do something about it. But I think like the better tack is to just be like, okay, this is extremely painful and I'm suffering over it. I'm angry about this. And it's really painful for me to deal with this, deal with knowing that this happened, but I'm just going to process that pain. And in, and while I'm processing it and until I can process it, I am not going to act out. I'm going to just process it. And I think this is a, a message that's not really very common. It's easier for somebody who's less connected. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I don't really know anyone in Israel. I don't have any friends who live in Israel. I'm not, I'm very identified with Jewish things. And a lot of my friends are Jewish, obviously my family, but I don't have the identification that some Jews have. I feel some identification, but it's not that powerful. So I feel like it's easier for me than, than it would be for them to be more rational. I feel like I probably could serve on a jury and evaluate the facts in this particular case. But if it were closer to home, if it were more personal, if I did have a family member that was killed there, cousin or something, you know, I would hope that I would process it and not want to have to just get rid of it. I mean, pain is part of human existence, suffering for the tragedies that happen in life. Even the, the tragedies that are the fault of another person it's part of human existence. And it's a battle over your own sort of heart and mind to not give in to vindictiveness and, and revenge. I mean, I want to fucking have revenge on those fucking assholes who wanted to put me in a camp, you know, for, for not injecting myself. I want revenge on them. Um, but, you know, I, I want it to be um, a trial based on facts. And I want them to be able to defend themselves and to account for what happened. There's a great Bruce Lee clip where he's training and, and he says, not anger, but emotional content. And I understand what he means. It's like the content of this pain, this emotional content is what you channel into your sense of purpose, into your sense of, I'm going to fucking prosecute every last one of these motherfuckers. I mean, you're angry, but you're not lashing out. Let's level it to the ground. It's like, we're going to find the facts. We're going to determine who's responsible. We're going to prosecute. And as I said, if they were prosecuting, you'd have, you know, Palestinians and other people saying, well, what about prosecutions for the people that killed us? And if they had good evidence for that and they brought that evidence, they would have to do both. And I think this is the problem. It's like going to couples therapy and you got like, well, you know, the problem is like she does this and she's always doing that. And it's just unacceptable to me. And then the wife talks and says, well, I do that because he's like this. And if, and I, and that's why I do that because he's doing this. And he says, but I only do that because you do that. And of course, both sides have their reasons. It's, it's, I only get mad because you're nagging me. Well, I only nag you because you don't do what you're supposed to do. Well, I only don't do what I'm supposed to do because you're saying I'm supposed to do it. And I know what I need to do. Well, I'm only saying you're supposed to do it because you don't do that shit. This is the nagging that I'm talking about. You need to do this thing. Like, but then she says, but you, you know, are always getting angry with me and then not doing anything. You know, so there's this cycle of whose fault it is. And the only way to break the cycle is for one of the people to just say, all right, it's annoying the way she is or he is. 
I'm just going to not let that emotion get me reactive. I'm just going to process what they're saying, decide, do I really want to do this or not? I'm not going to react. And if I want to do it, then I'll just fucking do it. And then, or if she wants to do it, she'll just do it without nagging. And I'll just do it without getting angry or not do it. But at least the reaction is not driving it. And in the end, there's a possibility of healing because you're both just like, all right, I'm not going to just, I'm going to take responsibility for my emotion. You know, I'm the one getting angry or I'm the one getting frustrated or I'm the one who's, I can't just contain like, okay, this state of affairs in the house isn't the way I want it to be. And I'm not speaking from personal experience. Don't, don't read into this. Maybe a little. And so we're, we're just going to have to handle our emotions around that shit isn't the way it's how I would want. Like, I don't want to be told what to do, but that, but not wanting something is just the state of affairs. Something unwanted is the state of affairs. And yet still my emotional reaction is my responsibility. And if I can take responsibility for that and not just try to get rid of the annoying feeling that I have that is given rise that someone else's behavior is triggered, then I can respond that react. And then we can kind of break the cycle of, you know, getting angry with one another. And, you know, this is obviously way, way bigger stakes, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like every time you just give into like, kill them all, fuck those people, raise it to the ground, or any Israelis a legitimate target, they're the oppressors. Anytime you give into that kind of reactive, I need to get rid of my sense of whatever it is that I'm feeling based on the circumstances, then the cycle just keeps continuing. And so in a way, it's this willingness to endure emotional discomfort, emotional pain that is at the heart of healing everything from yourself to global intractable conflicts. And I was running at the track last week and I was doing what I often do, which is like try to count down how much is left. I'm like, I'm a third of the way through. I'm halfway through. I'm two thirds of the way, you know, and it's fucking torture. I don't know why I do it. It's just this like agonizingly, like I'm trying to, I guess, give my brain some dopamine or something to give me a reward. Like, yeah, you're making progress. You're making progress. Like it's keep, keep updating the progress. Like a kid in the car being, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's so fucking annoying. But it's like, if you can give them like, oh, it's 10 minutes, it's eight minutes, it's seven minutes. It gives them a little bit of dopamine. It's like, okay, we're almost there. I'm almost over this discomfort of having to sit in the car, or this discomfort of having to run. And I was so fed up with this idiotic habit that I have that I was, I was like, why am I trying to get this over with so badly? Why am I acting like this is such torture that I need to count down every little increment until it's done? And so I said, okay, well, where's the discomfort? Like what's so painful that I'm trying to get rid of? And I scanned my body and my left foot has a little bit of like plantar fascial inflammation. I think it's an old injury. I got wrestling and I've always sort of aggravated it here and there. So every step with my left foot just had a teeny bit of pain, you know, on a scale of one to 10, one flossing your teeth and 10 getting your molars ripped out by pliers, marathon man style. I would say it was a two. So I'm like, okay, it's not really this that's so bad, right? This little twinge of pain when my left foot lands. And I'm like, the other pain, the one that I'm, seems like more relevant is in my chest. It's this like feeling of unease and vague discomfort in my chest that kind of radiates up into my throat a little bit. And I started observing that feeling as I was jogging slowly. I wasn't really out of breath, so it wasn't lung stuff. I was going slow. 
And I was like, oh, it's this. It's this chest thing that I really, really want to get over with. And I'm, it's just constant irritation. I'm like, well, what is this sort of unsettled discomfort in my chest all about? What is it? And I started like feeling it, letting it just be as strong as possible. And I realized it's just sort of an anxiety. It's anxiety over the fact that like I'm running and I could be out of breath. I've had some, I was diagnosed as a kid with exercise induced asthma. That's even a real thing. I never had like an asthma attack, but sometimes during exercise, your, your lungs contract a bit and it's really, you get really, really out of breath. And if you're pushing yourself, running with other people or playing a sport or racing somebody, you know, it could be really unpleasant. And so maybe I'm anxious that that's going to kick in at any minute and I'm going to be in this horrible discomfort that I'm used to or something. I don't know, but it's this sort of fear of future discomfort because the present feeling was not really pain. It was just an anticipation of pain. It was this like nebulous anxiety over that I associate, I guess, with running. So I'm just like, this isn't even really painful. It's just this nebulous feeling of anxiety or maybe when you're running and you're in touch with yourself because you're in your body and you're sweating and you're moving, you start getting in touch with some of the core anxiety you have in your life. Maybe it's that also. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the reason, it's this anxiety that I was trying to avoid, this existential anxiety, whatever you want to say it is. And I wanted to be back on my sofa on social media or writing something or researching something or going down a rabbit hole or doing a Sudoku puzzle or something. You know, I, I wanted to be in a place of comfort and avoidance of discomfort. And yet when you're on the track, mile after mile, in the sun, sweating, uh, haven't eaten breakfast and empty stomach, you're just, you can't avoid the angst, the anxiety, the real life experience of being a human being that you've so cleverly avoided through being online all the time and being indoors and lying on the couch or wherever you are. And I just feel that battle between like, no, this is it. This is life. Just feel your life, like feel the anxiety. This is the battle all the time. Do I run for the dopamine and say, I'm only half a mile left. I'm only a third of a mile. I'm only a quarter. Do I stay in the thoughts and try to avoid being in the discomfort of the body? Or do I just give in to like discomfort and say, discomfort is life. Life is suffering. That's the first noble truth of Buddhism. Life is suffering. Life is this feeling of uncertainty. And you don't know when you're going to die. And you don't know what's going to happen. And you have to just bear it. Bear the uncertainty. Bear that your beliefs may be wrong. All of this stuff. It's what being a tolerant person is. Not trying to snuff out any sort of disagreement. Anybody who you know, might have a different view than you. And I just feel like this is sort of the problem in general for humanity. And then you just see it played out on a large stage in your relationships with other people or in these wars in the Middle East where, where you know, we, it's easy to judge other people for being psychos about the vaccine and not wanting to hear that, you know, maybe this, this terror that the government propaganda is instilled in you and that you're holding back through, we must vaccinate, it's the only solution, that that sort of resolved that terror temporarily for you, that other people who don't agree are not to be excommunicated from society or demonized or deplatformed or tag their work and try to get them fired. Maybe that, maybe you need to fucking bear the discomfort of, yeah, your government's lying to you, or maybe they're telling the truth you don't really know, and maybe there's a deadly pandemic, and maybe there's not, and you don't know, 
And you just have to suffer the discomfort of not knowing and being in fear over that if it does make you afraid, you know? And that's just that. That's just your fucking lot because it's people have rights and you cannot make somebody who doesn't want medicine have medicine just because you're anxious. And the, the scientist told you something. The science said, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. And so this is the battle. And, you know, in the Middle East, and you see the same thing, you know, we must invade Iraq. We must get their WMDs before they get us. We must kill every last Palestinian because they would kill us if they could. And this is the problem. Or, you know, you see this on the college campuses. Oh, you know, it's the, it's the oppressor, the evil Jewish Zionist oppressors. And we must attack them. And they're even attacking their innocence is justified because they're the oppressors. This simple sort of resolution of your angst about the state of things. It's just a belief that you have that makes you feel, oh, I see, I'm good. These people are bad and I can attack them in any way I can. And I have to say, I don't have the Herculean restraint to avoid experience schadenfreude over the Harvard kids who basically cheered on the, and, and again, we don't know the facts, but they were assuming the facts were as alleged that there was a murderous attack in the way that it was described. And they were cheering that on. And now they're sort of deleting their accounts and and trying to disavow it because they're realizing that all these employers are lining up to blackball them. Now, I am a free speech absolutist. I think these woke morons at Harvard should be able to say that stuff. And I think other people should say that's ignorant and vile and stupid without them being blackballed. I think that if it comes up, you know, they should have to account for it. But I don't think that we should say because you believed and said some stupid shit when you were in college that you should be prevented from getting a job. And I, and I say that even though those kids would have probably put me in a camp for not taking the mRNA injection made by some pharmaceutical company at the command of the government. And yet, like, they think that, you know, the oppressors are over there. They're out there. And this is why it's a battle for the human heart within yourself. It's like the oppressors are not out there. You know, they're in here too. And the other thing about it is these Harvard kids, I mean, you know, what does it mean to get into Harvard? Well, it means you're just very good at complying with society's incentives. You don't get into Harvard unless you are excellent at taking advantage of those things to which you are incentivized to take advantage. You have to check all the boxes. It's hard to get into Harvard. And these kids were very good at doing that which they were incentivized to do. And naturally... They were incentivized, and you see this because I know um, family that's in LA getting indoctrinated and all that woke shit. White people are bad. You know, Martin Luther King's message of judge people by character. Oh, that's really palatable to white people. I heard one of them say, said, oh, that Martin Luther King message is really easy for white people to like. Yeah, it's fucking easy because it's a message of love and tolerance. That's why it's easy. And it's also correct. Judge people by character, not the color of their skin. But the guy's telling me like, oh, that's really easy for you to like. <laughs> as if like the teachings of Martin Luther King are not like what we were raised on as, and, and then from first principles are self-evidently valid. I mean, that's the reason why you like them. Not because, oh, he's a good guy. That's, that's not a good reason. Or he's an authority. That's not a good reason. The, good, the reason is they make sense. There was a philosopher, John Rawls, who I've talked about this before, had a concept called the veil of ignorance. And they said, if you were charged with making the rules for society, 
but you had to make them without knowing where you would line up in society, what race you would be, what ethnicity, whether you'd be rich or poor. You don't know in advance. Of course, most people are poor, so you'd probably be poor, but you might be rich, but you don't know. You're getting a, a lottery ticket birth, just like everybody else does, and you have to make the rules. Well, you know, Martin Luther King's rules were pretty good, right? Like judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I could be born black. I could be born Muslim. I would just hope that the rule in case I'm born in a skin or a race or an ethnicity where it's a minority in society and people in society may be prejudiced against that, um, that that's the rule that's codified in law. And that's the ethos that the society has. So it doesn't really matter as much that I'm different because I'm being judged by my character, not by my ethnicity. And this teaching was so obviously correct, if you think about it from that lens, which is a first principles lens. I think the Rawls example is a really good example of first principles. What axioms do you want? Not knowing who you're going to be. You know, what, what constitution do you want? I want the United States constitution. That's the one I want. And so, you know, this is the kind of way you think about these things, not is this convenient right now for me to Lord over you. And by the way, this is a white guy lording this over me, telling me Martin Luther King is, oh, sure, he's palatable to you. Of course he is. And so you have these Harvard people who are educated by people like that. They went to those schools where they're getting this woke indoctrination. And then, of course, because they are compliant and good at following the incentives where they lead, they believe that shit. And so now they're in college doing what they're incentivized to do, shouting all this woke stuff, even though, and again, I'm not saying this happened, but assuming the facts are true, and they were assuming they were true, celebrating a massacre of innocent Israelis. And all of a sudden, other people are like, what the fuck are you doing? You fucking psycho, you fucking moron. And they're like, uh-oh, wait a second. <laughs> I'm in what's called a double bind. I can't please both masters. I can't please the establishment business community, which has a lot of successful Jews and non-Jews who are like, dude, you don't cheer on terrorist attacks. And the woke people who are like, go Hamas. Hamas is a bunch of freedom fighters, even if they're killing innocent people. So they got caught in a double bind and they got fucked. And I, you know, I had some schadenfreude over it because those little fucking do-gooder little bitches who were telling everybody what to do in the pandemic and, you know, how to live and, you know, woker than thou. And, you're, you know, oh, sure, Martin Luther King would be palatable to you. You know, these fucking people are now busted. They're fucking busted because they are exposed for little incentive followers, little compliant, obsequious little bitches that don't have any sort of moral compass because they went so far on one that they violated the other. And it's a great lesson. That's just like, think for yourself, just think for yourself, have principles, have a code and, you know, don't be advocating that's permanent on the internet, especially to put the unvaccinated in camps or attack innocent Israeli civilians because you're incentivized to think that's the latest thing that you're supposed to believe because you're going to end up at a place where you're the monster. And it's probably what happened in history in all these episodes. Like you're like, how did these Germans in a civilized society end up doing what they did? It's probably because there were just a bunch of little do-gooding bitches who followed what they were told out of fear and compliance. And pretty soon the good people were the, the monsters. I mean, that's the good people are the monsters because they follow the good, the thing they're supposed to do, the incentives. And so the people that are not trying to be good, but just actually have principles and are just like, no, fuck that. You know, I'm not taking the shit. I'm not going to fucking tell you what medicine to take. 
And it's not because I'm nice or good. It's because I don't want that shit. And I wouldn't fucking tell, give it to anyone else. You're not trying to be good. You're just trying to defend your own liberties for your own benefit and the benefit of your family and friends. You're not trying to be good. You're trying to be true. It's more like you're just trying to do what's fucking right, but not because it's good, because it's true, because it's bullshit. It's like you should you should listen to what Martin Luther King said, not because you're some anti-racist good ally. Those are the fucking people that are going to end up being monstrous. I believe heed those teachings because they are correct, because they stand up under a first principles analysis, because you in the Rawls experiment, not knowing what race you're going to be born into, would want those rules. That's why selfishly first principles. And selfishly shouldn't mean however I can get ahead in my pathetic little way to get into Harvard. And that's that's not the selfish that's going to really help you in the long run. The selfish needs to be bigger and deeper than that. I want what's good for me in a deep way, in a spiritual deep way. What's good for me and people around me. And because I'm smart, I know that what's good for me has to be good for my neighborhood. I can't have a shit neighborhood with homeless people everywhere doing drugs and shitting on the street. That's not good for me. Tolerating that is not good for me. It's not good for my community. It's not because I'm a nice guy. Oh, I'm nice. I feel bad for these people. Let's just let them do drugs right in my face, right in the street. That's that's what the, the do-gooders will end up with, with outcomes like that. But people who are more selfish in the broader sense, like I want what's good for myself and myself includes me and my family and my community. And eventually in concentric circles out to the entire world, but I'm not worried about saving the fucking world. I'm worried about saving myself and my family, taking care of my health, my responsibilities. And then next, like maybe I should shop at that local place because I wanted to stay in business. I don't want to have to fucking order on Amazon. And I like the shopkeeper and he's chill and he knows me. So I'll shop there. I'll eat at this restaurant because it's good and I want to keep it in business. I'm not going to take an Uber across town to go to the the hip restaurant that's crowded. I'll just, this restaurant's also good. And I want to have good restaurants in my neighborhood. So I'm going to go there. It's selfish, but it's selfish in a broad minded way. And it's certainly not that do-gooding, narrow-minded selfishness that ends up with monstrous outcomes. Like you're cheering on a terrorist attack. And again, I don't know the facts, but they're assuming those facts are real and still cheering it on. So those guys are fucking idiots. And I love that it happened to the Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter to me is probably a CIA op or something because it just seemed like one of those things where you had to swear allegiance to it or you're a bad person and you can't criticize it. And then they you know, said, you know, we stand with Hamas or fellow freedom fighters. And then they got absolutely fucking pilloried for that shit. It's very simple. Like you're, you're sort of understanding racism and hate speech and all these fucking like these ter- this terminology. These are not, this is not like something outside of reality. These things are all part of reality. And so there, and so what's the reality? The reality is what are the first principles by which I should conduct myself? Again, treat people by the content of their character that eliminates all the racism right there. There, you may still have some private biases or people may have it, but to the extent that you have any control over your behavior, despite having biases, you say to yourself, what do, what's the best way to handle this? Treat people by the content of their character. Hopefully you don't even have to say that explicitly. It's implicit now because you learn the lesson growing up as I feel like at least people in my generation did. I mean, I, people I know, that's what they think. And I mean, even people who don't give a fuck about politically correct speech might laugh at a racist joke. They still believe people that I know content of the character. That's what's important. Don't treat people by race. Treat people by what kind of person they are. Trust the people that are trustworthy. I don't care where they came from, what their you know genetic background is, who their ancestors were. And that's it. 
judge them by their actions. And that is just the principle. And so all this other stuff is just a distraction. And actually it's worse than distraction. I think a lot of these operations were to make people hate each other, you know, to make Jews hate black people, black people hate Jews or Palestinians or white people hate black people, or, you know, just to divide society so that we don't uh, make common cause against the people doing this. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not leaping to conclusions and and I think we should just kind of keep all this stuff in mind. It's going to be a long podcast because I have other shit to talk about too. What else? And, oh, and by the way, one last thing on this, and this may piss some people off, but I think Pfizer has killed a lot more Israelis than Hamas has in the last couple of years. I know people don't like that because Hamas, to the extent that all this reporting is true, did it deliberately and wantonly and as cruelly as possible. But doing it slowly over time as a side effect in order to make money isn't sort of a wanton disregard. In, in uh, criminal law, there's there's murder. You need to intend to kill somebody, somebody. And Hamas is guilty of murder under this fact pattern that, that's that been reported because they had clear intent. But you could also be convicted of murder if you had reckless disregard, wanton disregard for human life. And so, for example, the, the one that I'm in New York in law school that used to say is if you just were to like fire a machine gun into a crowded bar, even though you didn't have beef with any particular person in the bar, it wouldn't be manslaughter, it'd be murder because it's so reckless to do that. You know with such a high degree of certainty that you're gonna kill a lot of people that whether or not you particularly wanted subjectively to kill people, you're, the, the intent is in, uh, imputed to you via your wanton disregard. And if you have a company that's making tens of billions of dollars and it knows from its own trials that there are myriad side effects and then when you give this out at scale, it's going to kill hundreds of thousands if not more. I mean, I think that's the conservative estimate. Um, what is that called? Is that not murder also? Is that not a similar sort of wanton disregard for human life based on the profit motive? I mean, maybe so. And so I feel like if this fact pattern is true, there should be absolute justice for what happened here. But equally, I think there should be justice for the people pushing this poison on, on the citizens of Israel. And, and we had bad mandates in the US, but I'm pretty sure and again, this is just from what I've read, that in Israel was even worse. And this is their own government and these large corporations doing it to these citizens. And I think the bottom line is like, as human beings, we need to stand with citizens, Israeli citizens and Palestinian citizens and people, not these governments and these terrorist organizations. And we should never cheer on as a W killing the, the regular people, uh, no matter what their ethnicity or race. We should never cheer that on. And there should be accountability both when there's a terrorist attack, a murderous terrorist attack, and there should be accountability when it's murder by profit motive and uh, and murder by the science and, and the sort of technocratic systemic murder just the same. Maybe people, because their emotions are riled up, they're thinking, no, 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 we need the scapegoat. We need it. It has to be the Palestinians. But I wish people would hold the medical death, the people that, that you know went ahead with these boosters, and they're still, at least in the U.S., recommending boosters for six-month-olds. And I think people reason backwards. They think, well, if they're recommending this, they can't possibly be killing all these people because they wouldn't do that. Because as you know, as misguided as they are, as tyrannical as the US government is, there's no way they would be recommend something to six-month-olds that they know, for, that doesn't help them at all, that they know will kill and severely injure some of them. They would never do that if that were the case. So they can't possibly think that's the case. So it can't be, you know, so what you're saying can't be true. But that's backward reasoning. That's, that's assuming positive intent, or at least not negative intent, uh, imputing a, an intent that you wish that they had. But I think the truth is that 
they just had a profit motive, didn't look, really look very deeply into it, even though they knew they, they had an incentive not to see it. Their incentives were not to see the negatives and to accentuate the positives and their jobs and their promotions and their futures depended on it. And once they did that, the obstacle in their minds to seeing the results of what they've wrought is so huge and they're so pot committed that of course they're recommending that if Pfizer tells them or the FDA tells them, keep recommending it or whoever's saying you got to keep recommending this important, they're only going to see it that way and they're going to ignore evidence to the contrary. They're literally not going to see the data, the disability and death and excess death data that is plain as day, the insurance claims, the cancer spikes, the heart disease spikes in people who don't usually get heart disease, the spikes among working age people who were forced to take it as opposed to the non-working people who took the vaccine in lesser numbers. All of this data is there and yet they won't see it. So that's unpopular because it's a lot easier to see these these roaches, you know, as in, uh, to use the black mirror terminology uh, as the cause and to scapegoat them. But even if the, the, everything's reported as true and those people absolutely deserve to be put down and prosecuted um, who were responsible for that attack, not only do the innocent people who are not responsible not deserve any punishment for that, just because they happen to be in the same ghetto, and that's probably the right word for a lot of the uh, Gaza Strip, as the uh, people who did this doesn't make them guilty of the same crime. And just because Pfizer, by the way, has a Jewish CEO, that doesn't make him not willing to do what he did or the Israeli government officials, just because they share the same ethnicity as the Israeli citizens, doesn't mean that they haven't done something monstrous. And I feel like it's very easy, you know, with the xenophobia that we all have naturally through, I think it's probably in human nature because different tribes had different microbes. And of course, different tribe might just kill you who weren't accountable to you and your tribe that they might kill you. And so we all have a bit of xenophobia, but um, sometimes the worst offenders are from our own tribes. And it's a truth that's probably not popular right now, but it would be awfully convenient to uh, let these people get off the hook who mandated this poison on people because another tribe did something horrendous, assuming that's what the facts end up showing. All right, that's enough on that. That's a lot. And people may be pissed about it, but it is what it is. It's, it's what I think is just true. And I'm going to say the truth as much as I possibly can. All right. Some different topics. Uh, I'm reading this book. I think I mentioned before, Broken Money by Lynn Alden. And I'm halfway through. And I have to say, this is probably the most informative book on the way money and finance and our financial system works that I've ever read. I'm learning a ton that I did not know and stuff that I vaguely knew, but didn't have clear conceptually in my mind. Lynn Alden is a very clear thinker and she explains it in such a way that you really start to understand it. And there's there's a couple of things that I really took away. One thing is how fucked up, you know, we, we talk about just the outright terrorism and the outright subjugation of Palestinians by state of Israel and the sort of unresolvable conflict that's just going on and on between the two of those things. But this is just one example of a unfair situation that is worldwide. I mean, the French, what they've done in Africa and, you know, what all the, all the developed countries do to their colonies and former colonies is this. And this is so fucked up. When you read this, um, there's like chapter, I think it's chapter 12 on how we export chaos to the periphery. And she explains that basically like, you know, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. 
And if you want to buy fuel because it's the petrodollar, we made a deal with Saudi Arabia that you have to, to use dollars to buy fuel. Saudis will not sell to you in mean, euros or gold or Brazilian hayash. It's just, you know, that you must buy dollars. So it means that these um, countries, they need dollars to get their essential fuel if they can't produce it themselves. And so these countries peg their currencies to the dollar, but obviously the dollar um, is a lot stronger and the dollar is the world's currency that everybody's propping up by needing it to buy their energy purchases. And so these countries, when they borrow money and then their own currency gets devalued, well, their leaders end up printing more money, which is what all leaders do with fiat currencies and their currencies devalued even more to the dollar. Now the dollar is being printed also in massive amounts, but because there's this sort of inherent demand from the dollar because it's tied to buying fuel, it doesn't get devalued as much. So this devaluation is only happening from the currencies, from the other currencies, the weaker ones. And so these countries get into debt because they've borrowed dollars in many cases to buy fuel and they're paying it back in their own currencies with their own goods and services gets more and more expensive. So they, they default. And when the default, the IMF comes in and the IMF was set up also with the World Bank and the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II as the sort of, okay, we're going to go help out these developing nations with loans. But it usually, the loan is usually like, okay, we'll bail you out. We'll, we'll, you've defaulted on your debt to the US or to the bank that lent you money in the US or Europe or whatever. But what we're going to do is we're going to re recalibrate your debt, make it a little more favorable to you. But we're going to A, own some land of yours in addition, and you need to take this new debt and you need to do it, put it to productive capacity, building some mines, building some railways, building some shipping ports, and also give this multinational corporation rights over some of the proceeds and products that you have there. So they end up giving you know, oil or raw materials, you know, uh, metals or valuable minerals that people need for industry to these corporations. And now basically the country still has debt that they have to pay, but these, the first world owns these minerals they have. And now they're all sort of set up in indentured servitude to work, to extract and export their natural resources to the first world. And this is happening all over. And of course their corrupt leaders go along with it because we've propped them up and the leaders themselves siphon off a small percentage of this loan and are living you know, lavishly with multiple mansions and Swiss bank accounts and assets in other countries. And you see this all over the world, these super rich sort of despotic leaders and these very, very poor uh, regular people whose jobs are to basically strip mine the natural resources for the cheaply for the benefit of the first world through these companies that have gone down there to extract them. And this is sort of the, the cycle. And whenever there's sort of an uprising against this, whenever the locals are like, this is fucking bullshit. We still have debt. We never agreed to this agreement. Our leaders did. They're super rich. We're broke. And they you know, have a coup or they overthrow the leader. Very often the popular leader gets assassinated in short order by somebody. And then the old regime or a new regime, if the old regime is, is too tarnished, gets put back into place that continues business as usual, extraction as usual. And so basically the reason why we have so many cheap goods and we live so well in large part is because we export all of the costs and uh, poverty to the third world and we extract all the resources from it. If we had to pay a market price in the third world for third world goods, things would get a lot more expensive. And if the US didn't have the 
the benefit of being the reserve, world's reserve currency, which props up the value of our currency, it would get a lot more expensive for us. There'd be a lot more inflation. Things, goods and services would be much, much more expensive in a truly capitalistic competitive world market. Um, so there's that going on. And this is like what these official agencies do is they basically just figure out new and improved ways to extract natural resources cheaply and beholden their, these countries to, to us to keep this going in perpetuity. So, so this is one thing I learned, which is, you know, that we've just externalized all of this to the, uh, to the third world. But what's going on now, and I think this is part of the whole global warming psyop, and I'm not saying that the temperatures aren't changing. There's exothermal core theories of why this year in particular temperatures did go up. Um, a lot of the predictions are false. The glaciers didn't melt, at least in prior years, like they were supposed to. This is a fucking psyop. Whether and the extent to which the climate's changing probably has nothing to do with CO2. And whether it did or not, it has nothing to do with the operation to make us think it does because that is a mechanism for control. But more than just control, it's a mechanism to justify reducing our consumption. Now, why would they want to do that? Because I think we're getting to the point in our debt, world debt, this US debt is 33 something trillion. We've put on, we put on half a trillion in the last couple of weeks itself. The global South, as they like to call it, I don't think is going to be able to fund this debt anymore. In other words, we can't just keep extracting from these poor people and taking their resources and that sort of paper over the deficit that we're under right now. And so we're going to have to start taking also from the middle and upper middle class of Western society. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you have bank accounts that represent a claim on the world's goods and services. Your bank account is an IOU from the bank. It's another thing I learned. You don't have money. You have an IOU from the bank. Your bank account is a liability on the bank's balance sheet. If you borrow money from the bank, that's an asset for them because you are you know, paying it back. Your mortgage is an asset on their balance sheet, but your bank balance, which is your money supposedly, is a liability. And so it's basically an IOU from the bank to you. Now, how does the bank... You know, if somebody owes you money and he's a total deadbeat, you're like, uh-oh, I may never see that money. So how do you know that the bank is at a deadbeat? Well, who's going to give them the money to pay you? Well, they have IOUs from the Federal Reserve. They have reserves at the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve is, owes them money and they then owe you that money. Well, how does the Federal Reserve get its money? Well, it has its money in treasuries, right? So it has this treasuries, which is basically an IOU from the U.S. government. The U.S. government issues treasuries. What are treasuries? They're bonds, they're loans. When you buy treasuries, you're loaning the government money. So the government borrows money by issuing treasuries. And those loans are at the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has an IOU from the U.S. government. And the banks have an IOU from the Federal Reserve. And your bank account is an IOU from the banks. Now, what does the federal government get its money? Well, it used to be gold. There used to be no counterparty. It just had gold. And that was money. And it wasn't worried about IOUs. But now the federal government does not have very much gold and the dollar is not backed by gold at all. So what is the federal government's money based on? It's based on tax receipts, IOUs from you, the citizen. So this is the circle, right? You have an IOU from the bank that has an IOU from the central bank, which has an IOU from the government, which has an IOU from the taxpayer. Now you see this is a problem because if the bank doesn't isn't good for your money, you're not paying taxes, right? So the government's not going to get its receipts. It's not going to be able to honor the 
T-bills that the Fed has, so it won't be able to honor the bank money, which won't be able to honor your bank deposit. So what's going to have to happen? Well, they're going to have to just print more money, right? Which is what's happening. Tax receipts are way down. And so they have to create more money. They have to create more loans. The banks have to create more loans and the Federal Reserve has to create more reserves in the banks. They have to print more bank account, bank accounts, basically. They have to say, oh, you, you only had 10 billion in bank reserves with us. Now you have... Well, add a zero to that. Now you've got a hundred billion. So there's more money for the banks to loan out. But of course, creating more digital money or paper money is not creating more goods and services. And so what starts to happen is inflation, that the your claim with a million dollars in digital money on the total amount of goods and services shrinks, relatively speaking. And so you just have this IOU that it can be shrunk and has to be shrunk. It needs to be because the goods aren't there. They don't have the goods. They don't have the goods and services to satisfy what we think of in today's valuation of dollars as your million dollars in value. Of course, it's already inflated over the last 50 years extremely, but it's going to inflate much more and much more rapidly because increasingly they don't have the goods. They can't just infinitely extract resources from the third world and build goods and services cheaply enough to cover the deficit that we have. So this, you know, they're going to print money in the short term. In the long term, there's going to be hyperinflation, which is why kind of all roads lead to gold and Bitcoin. But as she pointed out, this was very instructive in the book. You know, once the telegraph got invented in the uh, mid 19th century and transaction settlements weren't based on foot speed and horseback speed, but based on the speed of light, gold, which needs to be physically shipped, became sort of outdated. You can still have gold and then just say, okay, this is backed by gold, this piece of paper, and we'll exchange paper. This electronic uh, statement is backed by gold and we'll just exchange electronic statements, but that refers to the actual real gold. But of course, what happens when you start to fractionally reserve it and lend more than there is gold, which is what they're all incentivized to do, there is less and less relationship between these electronic bits going back and forth and the real gold to the point where the gold is you know, basically just totally not, it gets so indebted relative to the amount of gold that they just got off the gold. They know so much that you can't redeem it for physical gold at this point that they just scrap that altogether. And they can't really put the genie back in the bottle because gold just is too slow and cumbersome and expensive to make sure that it's real and to verify and to ship and to guard. But we do have a new gold, gold 2.0, which is Bitcoin, which has all the scarcity and proof of work properties of gold. The proof of work with gold is obviously mining it, which is a real pain in the ass because it's scarce and it's expensive and difficult to mine. And there's just not that much of it that we know of on this planet. And Bitcoin is using real energy that has a cost as proof of work. And it's got all of the scarcity and proof of work and algorithmic scarcity. But then again, it also ha can also be moved and transferred at the speed of light. We don't need to have this giant disconnect between the ledger that attests to where the gold is and who has what claim on what gold, which obviously got totally out of hand when we couldn't ship the gold, we could only ship the information when the information is the money itself. That's what the real breakthrough is, that Bitcoin, uh, by solving the double spend problem, that you can actually move Bitcoin from one account to another. You can obviously ship the same photo to 100 different people, but you can't ship the same Bitcoin to 100 different people, which was the problem um, with digital money was that with gold, you know, it's a bearer asset. You can only move the gold. Only one person can have the gold at a time. You can't copy the gold and ship it to hundred people, but you can with a picture or an email or any sort of information. Bitcoin's the kind of information that can't be copied and sent to a hundred different people. You can only pay one person. They solve that problem. And now you have money that is literally the information itself and information money secured by proof of work is the solution to the invention of the telegraph 
but the need for sound and scarce and uncensorable money that has no counterparty that this sort of, as Lynn Alden describes it turtles all the way down where everybody has an IOU from someone else who has an IOU from the first person that's, that's going to crash. You actually have a sort of the buck stops here, literally buck the Bitcoin stops here, the actual base asset stops here that underpins the whole system in a solid way. So her book without mentioning Bitcoin, maybe once yet, and she will, I think, in later chapters, makes a better case to, for Bitcoin than anybody could. They say, don't explain Bitcoin to people. They won't get it. Ex explain the monetary system to people and they will get it immediately. All right. This is a long podcast. It could take a long time to edit, but I feel I'm on a roll. So I will just keep going on an idea that I have that I haven't really been able to publish yet, but, but I'm working on it. And there is a verse in the Tao Te Ching and it says, the Tao gives birth to one. One gives birth to two, two gives birth to three, three gives birth to all things. And this verse really reminded me of something I've written about at length before, and that's tree three. And I'm not going to get into all of it. You can consult my tree three on my chrysalis.substack.com write up uh, for more about tree three. But I'll just say simply that tree three is a game with dots and lines wherein you have to find how many unique trees you could make, compose of them. And tree of one, where you have just one color of dot and line, a red dot and a red line, is one. There's only one unique tree you can make. Tree of one is one. Tree of two, when you have two colors, is three. You can have a tree with a red dot and red line. You can have a tree with a green dot and green line. You can have a green-red mix. There are three possible trees. Tree of two. Tree of three is so big, I can't describe it here, and I'm not going to try. You have to go to my articles to get it. But the Tao gives birth to one, one gives birth to two, two gives birth to three, three gives birth to all things. Tree of three may be Tao of three. It may be this game wherein it gives birth to something so vast. And there's something interesting about tree three also. It's so vast. It's not a number that you can, it's not like a Googleplex to the Googleplex power. It's not something like that. It's so much bigger than that. That's basically zero. I explained Graham's number. That's basically zero. It is so big. Is it's you'd have to go through so much math just to even understand the scale, and you still, even like me, would not understand the scale exactly. But one interesting thing about tree three is while it's proven to be finite, they have some proof that it's finite, it has no known upper bound. It has an enormous lower bound. They prove that it's definitely bigger than some in ridiculously, ridiculously massive number that I couldn't describe here. But they don't know its ceiling, they just know its floor. Its floor is some massive, massive, massive thing. They don't know the ceiling. And this is a very interesting concept, something that's finite, but there's no upper bound. Finite, massive, no upper bound. And to me, that kind of reminds me of the universe, right? The universe is supposedly finite. Big bang, light goes out from all, all sides and keeps expanding at the speed of light for 13 billion years and keeps pushing the boundaries. And maybe there's something beyond the boundaries or not, but... That's how kind of I imagine the issue. It's finite. It's indescribably large and without a clear boundary. Like what's the end of the universe? So it's kind of interesting. And if you think about infinity, you know, infinity is a lot like zero. They're kind of two sides of a coin. If you have a polygon with infinitely many equal sides, that's a circle, right? If you were to look at a square and then a pentagon, a hexagon, an octagon, and so on, where you get up to a, a polygon with 100 equal sides, it basically looks like a circle. And a polygon with infinite sides is obviously a circle. And a circle is kind of a zero in itself. There's, there's ideas like 
if you're everywhere, then you're nowhere in particular. So if your presence is infinite, you are not anywhere in particular. Your presence is nowhere. Um, but to be in a particular place is finite. So zero and infinity are kind of similar in, in contrast to what's finite. You know, a map of everything is a map of nothing. And, you know, the things that are finite are, are different. But the thing about tree three, or maybe I'll call it Dow three, Dow three, these things may be finite, but without an upper bound. And so they're sort of on the border between the finite and the infinite. You know, they're not really, they're not exactly finite, the Tao or the universe, but they're not infinite necessarily either. They're on the border between infinity and the finite. They're zero and, and infinity seem like opposites, but they're the same. And then you have the finite quantities, you know, regular numbers like five or seven or finite, zero infinity are on the other side. But in between, there's this borderland between finite and infinite. And that's where tree three or Tao of three is. And that's where life is maybe, you know, on the border between the finite and the infinite. Um, there was a, something I read that I don't remember the source, but they said the real action always happens on the boundary and between the land and the sea is the beachfront. Everyone wants to be on the beach, the beachfront property. Well, that's the boundary. That's where the action is. That's where the waves break. The boundary between being totally out of control and overly controlled is where art is made, where uh, amazing things happen in sports narrow boundary where you're just able to put in all your energy, but there's an element of control between control and out of control. And so, I don't know, just the fact that in the Tao Te Ching, there's a verse that basically mirrors the tree three function, how it grows is uh, just really interesting to me. And that this concept of not infinite, not finite or finite, but without upper bound just seems pretty deep. and. I've thought about tree three enough, but now I have a new idea about it. It's not just how insanely it expands, but you know, maybe this is sort of a mathematical way of describing something that's not just true, you know, about the physical universe, but true in, in a deeper sense and sort of the, uh, you know, what the universe means. All right. That's going to do it till next time.